Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our January 2015 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. In September 2013, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration issued approval for a new antidepressant, vortioxetine, for the treatment of major depressive disorder. In this article, researchers from the FDA summarized the process by which the FDA reviewed vortioxetine's new drug application. Special attention was given to clinical efficacy and safety data. Issues that were important to the FDA's approval decision are discussed, particularly the difference in the effective dose in domestic and foreign studies. The authors also discuss several new labeling features, specifically a description of the time course of treatment response and a detailed evaluation of sexual dysfunction. The primary source documents for this article were the FDA's reviews and memoranda for the vortioxetine new drug application. Vortioxetine's short-term efficacy was demonstrated in six short-term placebo-controlled studies. Maintenance efficacy was shown in a longer-term relapse prevention study. Overall, vortioxetine's efficacy was revealed in daily doses of 5 to 20 milligrams, with the higher doses generally being more effective. However, in the United States, the 5 milligram dose was not efficacious in any trial, and only the highest dose, 20 milligrams, demonstrated superiority to placebo. Vortioxetine's profile of adverse events was shown to be similar to that of other selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Discussing goals of care with hospital inpatients, including what to do in a code situation, has become a standard of care. Despite this, however, such discussions do not always take place. Through observation on a medical psychiatric unit, the authors wondered if this lack of discussion of code status was even more of an issue with psychiatric patients, since mental health, including suicidal thinking, may influence how patients respond to this discussion. Through a retrospective chart review, the authors compared code status discussion between psychiatric and medical inpatients at a single academic center in the Midwest. They analyzed indexed hospitalization data that included demographics, a primary diagnosis of cancer or a diagnosis that met national hospice and palliative care organization guidelines, whether or not a code status was ordered, and if a code status conversation was documented, presence or absence of an advanced directive, length of stay, and one-year mortality. The authors found that medical inpatients had a higher rate of code status order. They also found that psychiatric inpatients had a higher rate of code status changes throughout hospitalization, a higher rate of do not resuscitate and do not intubate orders, and a higher percentage of advanced directives in place. Possible reasons for lower rates of code status orders in psychiatric patients may include provider discomfort, 
and perceived decision-making capacity in acute psychiatric illness. It was unclear why more psychiatric patients had advanced directives in place. The authors conclude that it is important, insofar as it is possible, to have a discussion about code status with all patients admitted to the hospital, regardless of the admitting diagnosis. Many people suffering from psychosis experience symptom-relieving effects of antipsychotic drugs. Unfortunately, several of the drugs in use have metabolic adverse effects, such as weight gain and increased lipid levels in the blood. Both of these adverse effects are recognized risk factors for cardiovascular disorder. Consequently, cholesterol-lowering drugs could be beneficial for patients using antipsychotic drugs. The number of antipsychotic drugs users receiving such prophylaxis is, however, unknown. The authors of this article use data from the Norwegian Prescription Database to identify almost 200,000 individuals who started treatment with antipsychotics between 2004 and 2012. Their aim was to determine how many of these patients also received a prescription for cholesterol-lowering drugs in the statin class. The study received support from the Norwegian government and three other private nonprofit funding institutions. The study results show that 5% of patients receiving antipsychotic agents were also prescribed a statin. Other studies show that the comparable rate in the general population is 34%. Factors such as patient gender, age, and the number of different antipsychotics used were important determinants for statin prescription in the population studied by the authors. The specific type of antipsychotic agent was less important, even though some antipsychotics are known to be more metabolically unfavorable than others. The authors conclude that prescription rate of statins in antipsychotic users were lower than would be expected based on the recognized negative impact of antipsychotics on serum lipids. The study did not allow for determination of how many patients had elevated lipid levels in the blood. Nevertheless, the results support previous findings indicating that patients treated with antipsychotic agents receive suboptimal medical care with regard to metabolic adverse effects. Depression is common after acute coronary syndrome, and it has adverse effects on course and prognosis. Previous randomized controlled trials suggest that selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors are safe following acute coronary syndrome. However, their antidepressant effects remain unclear because of small sample sizes, low completion, inconsistent results, and heterogeneous samples. Escitalopram has not yet been assessed in terms of antidepressant efficacy in these patients. To address this question, a group of researchers from Korea conducted a 24-week randomized placebo-controlled trial of escitalopram in patients with depressive disorders after acute coronary syndrome. The study was funded by a grant from Lundbeck. Escitalopram was effective in these patients. Its beneficial effects were found not only for depressive outcomes, but also for social and occupational function. 
Escitalopram was also found to be safe and well-tolerated, and no significant associations were found with harmful changes in cardiovascular measurements. The authors conclude that escitalopram can potentially be recommended as an effective and safe treatment option for clinicians treating patients with depression following acute coronary syndrome. Suicide is an important cause of premature death in people suffering from schizophrenia. This study, supported by the Physicians Services Incorporated Foundation of Toronto, aimed to identify differences among victims of suicide who have schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or neither illness. The authors looked at coroner's files for nearly 3,000 suicide deaths in Toronto from 1998 to 2010. Of these, 258 individuals had schizophrenia, 169 had bipolar disorder, and 2,459 had neither disorder. Suicide victims with schizophrenia were the youngest, most likely to have never been married, and most likely to be living in temporary or assisted housing or jail. They were also the least likely to have experienced a recent stressor. Additionally, the schizophrenia group was the most likely to use a violent cause of death, specifically by falling from a height or by jumping in front of a vehicle. These findings highlight important differences in suicide between those with schizophrenia and those without. Notably, suicide in schizophrenia appears to be more illness-driven and occurs by more violent means than in bipolar disorder or in those with neither illness. Developing safe and effective long-term treatments for bipolar disorder remains a major challenge for contemporary psychiatry. Given available treatments, patients with bipolar disorder remain unwell in nearly half of long-term follow-up and the great majority of this residual illness is depressive. Mamantine is an NMDA glutamate receptor antagonist used to treat dementia. It has also been proposed for testing in bipolar disorder. To address this issue, the authors carried out a 3 plus 3 year naturalistic mirror image chart review study of the effects of adding mamantine to stably continued but ineffective ongoing mood stabilizing treatments in 30 patients with bipolar disorder. These patients, 17 with type 1 and 13 with type 2 bipolar disorder, had been followed intensively for three years at a mood disorder center in Rome. These individuals had consistently responded unsatisfactorily to standard mood-stabilizing treatments for several years before a daily dose of 20 to 30 milligrams of memantine was added to otherwise stable regimens for another three years. The authors compared number, polarity, estimated duration of episodes, and clinical global impressions for bipolar disorder scores for three years before memantine treatment versus the three years during treatment. Subjects improved significantly and progressively with memantine. Percentage of time ill, including total time ill, time in manic states, and time in depressive states 
decreased by an average of 74%. Severity scores on the Clinical Global Impression for Bipolar Disorder Scale were reduced by 63%, and the number and duration of new episodes of mania or depression decreased by more than 55%. These findings indicate that memantine was associated with substantial long-term benefits along with excellent tolerability. Memantine was found to ameliorate both depressive and mania-like morbidity in previously poorly responsive bipolar disorder patients. This study was supported by several private foundations and donor research funds. Omega-3 fatty acids are popular natural agents that can be used alone or in combination with standard antidepressants for treating depression. The comparative efficacy of eicosapenta enoic acid, or EPA, and docosahexaenoic acid, or DHA, two widely used omega-3 fatty acids, has not been well established. However, evidence thus far suggests an advantage for EPA. In a study funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, the authors carried out a three-armed, placebo-controlled, randomized, double-blind clinical trial comparing the antidepressant efficacy of EPA and DHA and of both of these omega-3 fatty acids against placebo. The study included 196 randomly selected outpatients with major depressive disorder at the Massachusetts General Hospital and Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. Patients were randomly assigned to eight weeks of double-blind treatment with 1,000 milligrams per day of oral EPA-enriched omega-3, 1,000 milligrams per day of oral DHA-enriched omega-3, or placebo. The main outcome measure was scored on the 17-item Hamilton Depression Rating Scale, or HDRS-17. All treatment groups demonstrated improvement of about 9 to 10 points on the HDRS-17, but no significant differences were observed between the three groups. Response rates were 43% for EPA, 45% for DHA, and 48% for placebo. Remission rates were 33% for EPA, 28% for DHA, and 32% for placebo. Again, these findings did not differ significantly between treatment groups. Tolerability was good, and no significant differences in side effects were found between the three groups. The study suggests that omega-3 preparations can produce improvement in depressive symptoms, but it is impossible to rule out placebo effects as the reason for clinical improvement. Thus, further investigation of the nature of the efficacy of these preparations is needed. To treat psychiatric diseases such as depression or psychosis, effective drugs must be able to penetrate the blood-brain barrier to reach their site of action. Because many drugs fail to pass the blood-brain barrier, the properties of a psychotropic drug that lead to a higher ability to enter the human brain are of interest. As there is no way to directly measure levels of psychotropic drugs within the brain, researchers can measure drug levels in cerebrospinal fluid as a surrogate parameter for the concentration within the brain. 
For the purpose of this study, the authors measured plasma and cerebral spinal fluid concentrations of the antidepressant venlafaxine extended release, a selective serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, in 16 depressed patients who were given a stable dosage of the drug. The authors found that venlafaxine and its active metabolite, O-desmethylvenlafaxine, were able to enter the cerebral spinal fluid. The ratio between cerebral spinal fluid concentration and plasma concentration was calculated to account for the ability to pass both the blood-brain barrier and the blood-cerebral spinal fluid barrier. 84% of the active moiety, the sum of venlafaxine plus its active metabolite that was measured in plasma, was also found in the cerebral spinal fluid. The authors conclude that venlafaxine and its metabolite have a good ability to enter the brain and to reach their site of action. The ability to identify features of depressive episodes that could indicate an undiagnosed bipolar disorder would be useful in the clinical setting. Bipolar disorder often first presents with depressive episodes, and distinguishing between a true major depressive disorder and the early phases of bipolar disorder can be difficult, particularly with younger patients. In this month's CME offering, researchers from Australia compared the phenomenology of depressive episodes between people with major depressive disorder and those with bipolar one or bipolar two disorder. All of the subjects had a family history of bipolar disorder. Compared to major depressive disorder, bipolar I depression was characterized by higher rates of psychomotor retardation and psychotic features. Bipolar II depression was associated with higher rates of mixed symptoms. Psychomotor retardation was more prominent in bipolar I patients, while mixed features were common in bipolar II patients. The authors also examined the probabilistic approach to bipolar depression, which proposes that bipolar depression can be distinguished from major depressive disorder based on a number of symptoms, including hypersomnia, psychomotor retardation, pathological guilt, and age of onset. The probabilistic approach differentiated both bipolar subtypes from major depressive disorder but could not robustly distinguish between bipolar I and bipolar II. This approach worked best for ruling out cases that were less likely to reflect an underlying bipolar disorder, thus allowing identification of patients who may warrant further assessment for bipolar disorder. Anorexia nervosa is a brain disorder characterized by self-starvation, low weight, and neuroendocrine dysfunction. One half of anorexia nervosa patients predominantly restrict their food intake. The other half alternate between restricting and binge eating or purging behaviors, which are associated with worse outcome. In this article, the authors explore appetite-regulating hormones, which they hypothesize may underline restricting, binge eating, and purging behaviors in women with anorexia nervosa. Between women with restricting type and binge eating and purging type anorexia nervosa, 
the authors compared levels of hormones known to be involved in eating behaviors. Specifically, peptide YY, brain-derived neurotropic factor, or BDNF, and leptin. They also looked at associations between these anorexogenic hormones and aberrant eating behaviors. The study received funding from the National Institutes of Health. The results showed that peptide YY and leptin levels were lower and BDNF levels were higher in women with binge eating and purging type anorexia nervosa relative to those with restricting type. After they controlled for body mass index, differences in peptide YY remained significant and differences in BDNF were at the trend level. Peptide YY was positively associated with dietary restraint and BDNF was positively associated with purging. Leptin was positively associated with restricting and negatively associated with binging and purging. The authors conclude that it is possible that dysregulation of anorexogenic hormones may play a mechanistic role in the etiology or maintenance of disordered eating. Longitudinal studies are needed to determine whether elevated peptide YY plays an etiologic role in increasing and maintaining self-starvation in the restricting type. Further studies are also needed to determine whether elevated BDNF is involved in promoting purging behaviors. Past studies have shown that many people who use antidepressant drugs have no history of mental disorders. However, recent studies suggest that one-time evaluation of mental disorders commonly used in such surveys may substantially underestimate the true lifetime prevalence of these disorders. In a government-supported study, researchers from the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health examined the prevalence of mental disorders with multiple interviews among people currently using antidepressants in a community sample. 1,071 participants were interviewed four times in 24 years to assess the prevalence of mental disorders such as major depressive disorder and anxiety disorders. The study found that among current antidepressant users, 69% never met criteria for major depressive disorder and 38% never met criteria for major depression or anxiety disorders in which the efficacy of antidepressants is indicated. Since a prospective evaluation was used, the lifetime prevalence estimates of mental disorders in this study should be much closer to the true lifetime prevalence of those disorders than estimates based on one-time evaluation. Nonetheless, many antidepressant users still do not carry a lifetime history of mental disorders. The study indicates that antidepressants are commonly used in the absence of clear evidence-based indications. Working Alliance, defined as the collaboration between patients with first-episode psychosis and their case manager, is regarded as a key element in specialized early intervention services. The impact of this patient-case-manager dyad on functional and clinical outcomes is not well understood. 
In a cross-sectional study funded by government agencies in Denmark, the association between working alliance and clinical, cognitive, and social outcomes was investigated in 400 patients who were 19 to 37 years of age with a diagnosis within the schizophrenia spectrum. The authors found a significant association between good working alliance and fewer negative and disorganized symptoms and between working alliance and better social functioning. Patients' perception of self-efficacy appeared to mediate the effect of working alliance. Cognitive functioning, compliance with antipsychotic medication, and self-efficacy had a stronger influence on the clinical and functional outcomes than the working alliance itself. These findings suggest that patients with more severe negative symptoms and poor social functioning are at a higher risk for poor working alliance. Consequently, the case managers may need to provide more specific support to enable these patients to fully benefit from the working alliance. One interpretation of the results suggests that even if a strong working alliance is not the key element in treatment, it may be important for achieving and maintaining adherence to the specialized early intervention treatment. In turn, it may provide the basis for fully utilizing intrapersonal factors, such as self-efficacy and cognition, to achieve better clinical and functional outcomes. The authors conclude that future research should include a longitudinal study examining the influence of working alliance as assessed by both the patients and the case manager. Previous studies have shown that short-term use of zolepidem may improve motor function in some patients with Parkinson's disease. However, the body of evidence is still too small for definitive conclusions about the drug's influence on this patient group. To learn more about this drug's potential, the authors of this article conducted a study with a longer follow-up period than those in previous studies to determine whether the use of zolepidem affects the risk of developing Parkinson's disease. They conducted a retrospective, population-based cohort study that identified subjects from a large database, the National Health Insurance System of Taiwan. The study was supported by the Taiwanese government and China Medical University Hospital. Nearly 3,000 subjects who had used zolepidem for the first time for a period of more than three months were compared with nearly 12,000 controls. The duration of follow-up period ranged from three months to 10 years. The study results showed that the overall incidence of Parkinson's disease was greater among zolepidem users than in the comparison cohort. However, there was no difference in Parkinson's disease incidence between these two cohorts after five years of observation. By stratified analysis, zolepidem use with concurrent depression increased the risk of Parkinson's disease compared to zolepidem users without concurrent depression. The authors conclude that zolepidem use might unmask preclinical Parkinson's disease, especially in patients with depression. Clinicians should monitor any signs of Parkinson's disease when prescribing zolepidem. Many previous studies have reported that the gene 
SNAP25 or SNAP25 is significantly associated with ADHD. However, no convincing evidence has suggested an association between SNAP25 and schizophrenia or major depressive disorder. Since shared genetic factors have been considered to exist in different psychiatric disorders, the authors of this article investigated the association between SNAP25 and schizophrenia and major depressive disorder in the Han Chinese population. The study received support from private, government, and university nonprofit institutions in China. The authors genotyped seven single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, covering the SNAP25 gene in 1,330 patients with schizophrenia, 1,045 patients with major depressive disorder, and 1,520 healthy controls. Two SNPs, RS3787283 and RS3746544, were found to be associated with both schizophrenia and major depressive disorder in this study. Postdoc analysis revealed that the allelic effect of RS3746544 shared the same risk direction between schizophrenia and major depressive disorder. The authors concluded that SNPs in SNAP25 represented a common risk factor in both schizophrenia and major depressive disorder and that this gene may play an important role in the etiology of several neuropsychiatric disorders. Untreated or undiagnosed ADHD leaves many American adults struggling at work and at home, and Hispanic Americans seek treatment at a disproportionately low rate. Whether cultural differences obscure symptoms or translations trigger misunderstanding, clinicians must be aware of the most common cultural barriers preventing their Hispanic patients from receiving effective care or from coming in at all. In this new commentary, led by Dr. Rostein and colleagues, you will discover how cultural barriers prevent some Hispanic patients from seeking treatment, how to overcome language barriers effectively, how sensitivity to patients' culture affects treatment success, how strong rapport helps you make an accurate diagnosis. Read this new commentary to learn about treatment disparities between Hispanics and the wider population, as well as cultural barriers that affect recognition and treatment of ADHD. In this month's ASCP Corner offering, Terence Ketter and colleagues give an update on recent events in bipolar disorder drug development with a focus on three drugs. Lorazidone, a second-generation antipsychotic, was recently approved by the FDA for acute bipolar I depression. Armadafinil, which is indicated for sleep-related conditions, does not have an indication for bipolar I depression but the authors note it may be worth considering as augmentation therapy in certain patients. Finally, caripazine, another second-generation antipsychotic, is not yet FDA-approved, but has demonstrated effectiveness in mania associated with bipolar disorder. 
The authors highlight the relevant data on each of these drugs and note that despite the slowing of bipolar drug development during the 2000s, the current decade may bring significant advances. Patients with obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD, who do not respond adequately to a serotonin reuptake inhibitor often receive augmentation with an atypical antipsychotic. However, atypical antipsychotics may not be appropriate for all OCD patients. This month's clinical and practical psychopharmacology column considers ondansetron as a possible augmentation therapy. This 5-HT3 receptor antagonist has several possible applications in psychiatry and neurology, and Dr. Andrade discusses the findings and limitations of the existing research on its use in OCD. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read this column and participate in the discussion. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the January issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.